I think the important thing here is a, a lot of people misunderstand, you know, paying premium in the development space. You know, paying premium in development space does not mean that you overpay, does not mean that, you know, you're emotionally attached to the property. Uh, it's the property is significantly undervalued from a developer's perspective, right? Because their market value, their notion of the market value is very different to a vendor's expectation of the market value, right? Because they are comparing it to what the face value of this property is versus a developer who is looking at the as is complete value of what it's going to be. And that's why, you know, this price discrepancy, you know, fits really well in high net worth strategy perspective. Hello and welcome to Help Me Buy Property Podcast. Today we are going to talk about does paying a premium for a property makes sense? We're going to discuss a lot of different things about why people pay premium, why does it make sense to pay premium for certain properties or certain times or what scenarios is it okay for you to pay premium? Now, before we get into the juicy bits, let's do drum rolls and introduce Cheryl. Hello, Cheryl. How are you today? Hello, hello then, Moz. And this is really relevant. It's a relevant question because as we're seeing, we've got some really hot markets happening, particularly in WA. And, you know, people are paying premium for certain things which may not stack up in value. So I think it's a really important topic to raise as to whether it does make sense or it doesn't make sense. And when, if ever, does it ever make sense to... There's a massive stigma behind this, right? That, you know, you should never overpay for a property, right? And so I rightly believe so. But if you think about this, I would rather pay a good price for a property or a good property, an investment grade property, than pay a cheap price for a bad property. And I heard this somewhere that when you pay more, you might lose a little. But when you pay cheap and buy a dud, you potentially can lose everything. And like bad doesn't mean like, you know, ugly looking properties, right? You know, bad basically in this scenario means non-investment grade properties that a lot of people end up buying, right? Because, you know, they're in a hot market, you, they buy the property, there is no competition and they think that they've got the deal of a lifetime, right? And that property grows slightly and then all of a sudden, you know, market readjusts and people realize that, oh, shah, you know, I ended up buying something that I shouldn't have bought. Yeah. And I guess the question is, what do you mean by good price what's a good price so it's so relative to you know so many things right so let's talk about what are some of the things that that determine what's a premium or good price for a property what's your definition typically when when i think about the property and the price relative to the property there is a fair price for every property that you're going to pay right and you're 100% right you know it's a very relative term in relation to who is buying what is their risk appetite, how much they want to spend, what have the experience been, right? And so some properties that I might buy, people might think that it's way too expensive, but, you know, others, it might be cheap for me. But then, you know, the returns that we have got for the clients, you know, all of a sudden people realize that, oh, you know, it wasn't cheap so much, right? Like, think about this, right? You know, you go and take yourself back six, seven years ago in Melbourne, say, for example, 15, 20 kilometer radius, you could buy properties, you know, under 600,000. You look back and you'd be like, wow, they were cheap, right? Well, you look because you're looking back. Hindsight is a... It's a beautiful yeah, thing. Because you're... But, that, but at the time, you might have said, oh my goodness, how expensive is that? I mean, 
how it wasn't that long ago where we thought million dollar properties were expensive. Definitely. Yeah. And so you know, the rationale that I'm quoting is that hindsight in a hot market happens a lot more quicker, right? The hindsight happens in a week's time. You realize that, oh, you're paying an extra $10,000 every week because that's the hindsight. You know, this is not a six year hindsight anymore. It's a one week hindsight. So, and you know, typically that's where the relativity comes through. And we'll talk about some of these things in quite detail because the type of the property dictates the premium nature of that property too, right? It's not always about buy and hold. I think the game changes quite significantly when you talk about development properties and paying premium for those properties or, or properties where there is location and scarcity. So, you know, let's talk in a bit more structured manner. You know, why do people pay premium for a property? And there could be good and bad reasons for why people would pay premium for the properties. Let's start with the first and the most common one, which is location. And everyone talks about location, location, location. What do you think? Well, definitely. I mean, there are certain locations or suburbs where it's going to be, there's much higher demand. So you might be, you know, people might be paying more purely because it's in a particular catchment for a really good school, a private school or one selective school. So people are going to pay a little bit more because they want to be in that location to get access to that school. So in that sense, then you've, you realize there's not the sort of emotional buying to a certain extent and the buyers are more so their motivation is not really so much about the property or its potential growth. It is more around what value will this property allow me, which might be access, you know, it could be access to work, could be access to schools, like we said, could be access to other things. So I think from that aspect, people are willing to pay a premium, whether it's the right investment decision to make, that's a different thing. But I guess if we, if from your side, you know, when you're buying for yourself or investors for investment grade properties, when does it make sense to pay more than it's, and I guess when I think of paying a premium, is it more than what the banks might value it? Or is it more than what the standard house in the area in comparison would be worth? That's my idea of premium. Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. And look, I think you've hit the nail right on the head when you talk about location again. You know, there is two definitions to location. Location based on personal preferences of owner-occupier because, you know, they have their own choice and niche of, you know, area that they want to live in. But then, you know, if you look at the flip side from an investment perspective, location comes down to the microeconomic factors you're talking about, you know, the high demand or supply areas where, you know, the growth basically eventually translates into price growth, right? Or rental pressures eventually, you know, translates into price growth. You know, these are the areas where people talk about, you know, 75 to 80% of the, you know, property capital growth is dependent on location. Basically, this is what you mean that, you know, if you select the right suburb, the right property, the right street at the right time, you know, away from the busy road, you know, of course, you know, doing all that due diligence, you know, you will hit the mark every time, right? And that's where the power of location and no one can deny the power of location, right? Yeah. And, and that's why, you know, one of the key things that a lot of buyers agents, including ourselves, do is, you know, pay a lot of attention to data, pay a lot of attention to, you know, what pockets are we going to buy in? I was using this example for, you know, one of my clients before that, you know, Perth, what it's doing right now is basically a reputation of Adelaide in 2018. 
And so we opened up Perth in 2020. You know, people who have been listening to me religiously, you know, December 2020 is when I started talking about Perth and I said the Perth market is going to take off. And so typically when you look at Perth, when we first started in Perth, we were almost well over 50 suburbs is where our focus was. Right now, it's we are down to 10 suburbs only. So location and especially chasing short-term growth, you know, yeah, you right. come in and out of suburbs quite quickly because you realize that suburb is hitting its maturity quite quickly as well. So it plays a really, really big part when it comes to, you know, why would people pay premium? Because, you know, location and buying in the right pocket, right location means that, you know, you might have to pay premium when there are 30 pro- offers on, on a single property in those particular locations. Yeah. And you, you talk about something there. It's it's not sort of making these decisions by chance. Like you said, if you're purchasing investment-grade property, you, you need to have a basis and data-backed information to do that. It's not sort of like, I think it's going to happen here. Right? One of the, if you're going to be paying a premium, you need to be able to, to back that up by why you feel there is a good chance that there's going to be some level of worth. There is a lot of herd mentality that goes into this as well, right? You know, you see property profits, property guru, you know, I, you know, name one suburb or come out and name a few suburbs as hotspots. And then all of a sudden, you know, you see 20 or 30 people or even 50 people, you know, lining up and buying the property there, you have changed the suburb median quite quickly. And we're talking about smaller suburbs, right? Where 50 sales means a lot. You know, I see that a lot that is happening in Townsville, right? You know, suburbs like Condon in town, Townsville, no one have even heard about it. You know, some of these areas where the population gro- growth is so small, but, you know, you get 50 people paying $1,000 extra and that there is your $50,000 growth, right? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, eventually people don't understand that, you know, it's not about herd mentality. It's not about following what someone is saying. It's about you doing your own research and making sure that you understand. And it's a reverse psychology as well. And I've talked about this in one of an other podcast that I was doing the other day where, you know, people basically go in and buy in certain pockets and then go out and advertise that, hey, this pocket is great. And then all of a sudden people who haven't paid for these courses basically come in and start buying in those pockets. And so you would see that it's data manipulation at its best, right? Yeah. So again, you know, do your research, you know, buy based on fundamentals. Fundamentals never go wrong when it comes to property, right? Short-term growth is important. No one is denying it. But you can't fundamentally, you know, you can't go wrong if you're buying a fundamentally right property when it comes to investment grade properties, right? Yeah. And what example that you gave where, you know, 50 people are putting in a 1000 or $2,000 extra, right? What is that percentage in relative to the price of the property? Because that, that's also another consideration. I mean, premium by how much? Are we talking premium by $100, $1,000, 10%, 20%? See, typically, you know, some of these pockets that I'm talking about, I'm talking about, you know, properties which are sub 400 properties, right? You know, 300, 350 properties, right? So, you know, for an extra 1000 or $2,000 makes not a big difference, right? From a person's mindset perspective, I'm like, oh, it's an extra 2000 or extra 5000 right? But you see herds and herds of people coming in and doing this, you know, that changes the median quite quickly. And for people who yeah. follow the data quite religiously, they, they notice these trends, right? Um, I notice these trends on a day-to-day basis and seeing this data coming through and be like, wow, it's so powerful, right? That, you know, any person, and I'm not naming names here, you know, any person who has a decent credibility and they put their hand up, even me today, right? If I put my hand up and say, hey, this is a hot suburb and I've got my clients buying there for six months before yeah. or a year before, 
and I have a following of 20,000 people, all of a sudden, you know, even if, you know, 20, 10% of that following or influencing goes in and buys in that pocket, you know, that's, you know, me validating to my existing ones that, hey, you've seen the growth, right? And so yeah. it's such a, it's, it's such a fallacy. It's like a false economy that, you know, is being created in the property industry that I'm seeing right now happening quite aggressively, especially in the low dominating markets, you know, where, you know, people are buying sub 300 properties. So yeah, that's interesting. And, and, and that's a good segue into land to asset ratio, right? So, you know, and that's one of the fundamental reasons that I personally follow where, you know, you would pay a premium for a property when you have a good land to asset ratio. For users who don't understand land to asset ratio, let's talk a bit about that. Do the honest share. Sure. So you've been looking at, say, generally you might have, you know, if you're in a suburb where you've got 400 square meter lots, but then you've got, you know, out of a few, few of those properties, you might have one that's 700 square meters. And so you pick them and the house is relatively the same size as all the others or probably even, even smaller. So you've got a certain land value that is, if you break it down from a square meter rate, that it is going to cost a little bit more. And so at the end of the day, land is the part that appreciates. It's not so much, it's not so much the property itself and the building itself. Yeah, you sort of have to look at then, you know, potentially what could you do for that that block? And I, you know, we often will look at what is what is the development potential. I know that we'll address that further down, but it's looking at, you know, could I possibly build a larger, you know, add more rooms to this property? Could I build, put it in a gray flat? Could I probably put a duplex on it? So there's that potential to do more with more land as well. Definitely, 100%. And I think you're right when you talk about land to asset ratio, the easiest way that I explain this to myself is how close to the land value are you buying this property, right? And if it's as close to the land value as possible and you're getting the house for free, then you are striking a good deal every time because as you said, land is what appreciates. And so the easiest way to understand this basically is the same example. You know, if the land is selling $1,000 per square meter, a uh, 400 square meter land is for four 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 hundred thousand dollars that is selling that is a going rate right now and if you're buying a 700 square meter property and if you're paying only say 500,000 for that particular property you know the, the land value typically sits at around 420 or you know uh, the land value typically sits at around you know almost 700,000 if you're paying 500 your land to asset ratio is well over 100 percent right because you know you're getting the house for free right and so I pay a lot of attention when it comes to land to asset ratio. And every time you see a land to asset ratio of over 100%, you would definitely would consider paying a bit more premium for that property because you're just paying for the land value typically. And so adding to that, you know, if you can add a subdivision potential to it, or you can subdivide it, or you can create an exit strategy out of it, you know, that's a unicorn, right? Because then now you all of a sudden have that, you have that golden egg where you can, unlock that equity, right? And create more for yourself. And so it's an amazing strategy. And so for people who realize this and understand that, you know, if you can pick the right location and a good land to asset ratio and create an exit strategy together with that, you know, you can never go wrong. And those are some of the key fundamentals that people should follow when you're talking about, you know, paying premium for the property. 
let's talk about the most interesting one, which is the potential to manufacture growth. I think this is where the game changes completely, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I sort of found out and understood more how this sort of premium, offering a premium works where I became accustomed to and knowledgeable about development, but also securing properties, say via option or where you've got a longer settlement term. And back in the good old days, what you do is that you secure a, you secure a site, you might have an option for two years, could be even have an option for five years. And people will pay a premium, so it might even pay 10, 15% more, sometimes even 20% more than what the value of that house currently was to be and with the expectation that in two to five years or whenever the option expires, that the value that one you could add value by like putting a development ap- approval on it and it would increase the value of the overall property and that's where a lot of developers would would say i will pay a premium for it let's just say it's hypothetically 20 percent, which is a it was a big chunk right usually it's 10 15 percent and owners would look at that and go fantastic oh my goodness i'm getting you know, if it was a million dollar property, I'm getting a hundred thousand dollars more just to hold it for a bit longer. Why not? I and that would be sort of a real win-win for the owner because they're holding it for another two years. That's fine. They get a hundred hundred grand more, and then the developer had the chance to be able to do what they wanted to do by putting a development application for you know land subdivision, townhouses, whatever you might want to do, apartments or so. So. Yeah. That's when, that's when I first really saw the power of paying a premium. However, in the current market now, because owners are so used to getting these sorts of offers, it's not a premium anymore. It's almost sort of like I expect to get more for the property anyhow. And actually, even if I want to settle in six months, I want to get the same price. Yes, and so it's become the status quo right now for a lot of development properties because a lot of people are doing it. You know, owners and vendors are getting educated a lot more right now, right? So, but it's exactly right. Ultimately, when you talk about potential for manufactured growth and people paying premium for it, you know, it's definitely through renovations or redevelopment, right? Rather than relying on the market to, you know, deliver that growth to you. And so it's all about the profit that you can deliver through that site. And the more profit you can deliver, if you can take away your margins, then, you know, there is enough residual price that you can pay for that particular property. I think the important thing here is a, a lot of people misunderstand, you know, paying premium in the development space. You know, paying premium in development space does not mean that you overpay, does not mean that, you know, you're emotionally attached to the property. Uh, it's The property is significantly undervalued from a developer's perspective, right? Because their market value, their notion of the market value is very different to a vendor's expectation of the market value, right? Because yeah. they are comparing it to what the face value of this property is versus a developer who is looking at the as-is-complete value of what it's going to be. And that's why, you know, this price discrepancy, you know, fits really well in high net worth strategy perspective where, you know, people can make a lot of money by holding these sites through auction option contracts or longer settlements or buying properties with development potential that they, they can do more in the future as well. The biggest caveat from my perspective, for my experience and learning that has been is 
that I find that while there is a lot of talk about manufactured growth and manufactured property, a lot of people do not truly understand what this means. Even like some of the most experienced buyers agents do not typically understand what this, this really means. So, you know, when you talk about splitter blocks, high-density zones, you know, access with side lots, corner blocks, that doesn't mean that if a property has this, it, you know, all of a sudden it becomes great. It's about having that feasibility and sticking behind that feasibility, making sure that, you know, you, your, you know, the numbers make sense. And of course, the numbers move sometimes too, right? There is so much ambiguity in, you know, in development feasibilities, you know, bill prices change, interest rates starts rising and all of a sudden the sites doesn't work or, you know, you have put in something really, really silly, right? And, you know, the market wants something which is a four bedroom, two bathroom and you're building two bedroom townhouses there. And of course, the market is going to penalize you for doing something so silly. So it's important that, you know, while this place is a great place to pay premium, like these properties are great to pay premium, it's also important to call it out that a lot of mistakes happens in this space too. Yeah. Where people actually overpay. Absolutely. And the, it needs to stack up. The feasibility needs to stack up. Yeah. You know, and I say back in the back in the day when when you did a feasibility, you put an escalation price on your gross revenue. Uh, so it would be say if you're you know, we completing and selling in three years. In your feasibility, you put in maybe a three percent escalation every every year. It's different. It's different now, where you sort of you don't put that in because the market might not move at all in that time. And if you think that it's going to escalate three percent, that should really just be a bonus on top of whatever you get. So if your if your feasibility doesn't work on today's dollars. Don't risk it because there'll be a whole lot of things that might happen in the next three years. And as we've seen, the last two years, the last two or three years has been incredibly volatile in the development space. So if you are going to pay a premium and if you are going to use something like options contracts or whichever, make sure that you've safeguarded yourself so that in case you need to pull out, that you're not going to lose the hair on your back which hopefully you don't have anyhow. But, but let's not go well. Anyway, I, di- I digress. <laughs> let's talk a bit about some of the negative sentiments around, you know, why people would pay a premium for a property as well. And I think the first and the foremost is a lot of competition, you know, real estate agents playing their bluff, you know, people throwing the towel in, believing what the real estate agent is saying. So... No, let's talk a bit about that. Interestingly, what are some of the the tips and tricks that the agents use to convince buyers to pay a premium? Look, I mean, it, in a hot market, it's so hard to call a bluff. You know, like me as an experienced buyer's agent as well, right? It's it's very, very hard to call a bluff. You know, sometimes they would make up stories that, oh, I have 10 offers or 15 offers, you know, as an experienced buyer's agent or an experienced investor, your first and foremost duty is to ask as many questions as possible because if they are bluffing, they would contradict somewhere, right? And so it's very, very important to catch those contradictions, right? I remember, and this is this is a really funny story. We were buying this property for a client where we thought we knew that you know the fair price for this property was all the way up to five seventy, and so we would have paid five seventy for this property. But you know, knowing me. And, you know, and, and trying to squeeze a deal out of an agent, we were sticking our guns to 560, 565, right? 
Um, and so our final offer was sitting at 560 and we thought we'll push it to 565 and basically close the deal. And so the agent said, look, I have another offer at 565. So if you don't go above that, you know, I'm going to, you're going to lose the deal. And we've done a lot of due diligence. We knew what the bank valuation was, et cetera. And so we didn't call on that bluff and we said, okay, you know, let's, let's call this at 566 and, you know, close the deal. And so we did. But then, you know, later that night, I was like, what if this guy was bluffing? What if, you know, like, you know, you always have these second thoughts, right? And so this is the game that we played with the agent, right? Next morning, I called up the agent and I said, I'm sending the valuer out. We are still in the due diligence clause. There is subject to finance in there. So if the valuation doesn't stack up, I pull out. And he's like, okay, that's fine. And I divvied up a valuation, a desktop valuation of that property uh, through a broker. And yes, this is not illegal. You know, there is various ways you can get a valuation from the property. And I threw a valuation at him, which was $20,000 below the market, below the price that we were showing him. Yeah. And he looked at it and, and he's like, okay, let me go back to my vendor. And so he went back to his vendor, dropped the price down by 20K. And, you know, we got that property at around, you know, I think 540 or 545 or something. This is where the story gets really interesting. Our real valuer goes on site on Monday. And so this is Friday. And so he gets a call on Monday saying, hey, I'm the valuer for this property. I'm going to come in and visit this property. And that's where the agent realized that they have played the game better than the game that I was playing, right? And so he calls me and he said, this is not fair. You know, you never did the valuation. Now I've reduced the price and your valuer is coming out. And I was like, no, I'm seeking another valuation. There's nothing wrong with that. I want to ensure that, you know, the bank values it properly. And so the valuation came back fine at 445 and, you know, there was nothing wrong with it. It would have come out fine at 450, 445. It would have come out perfectly fine at 565 as well because we knew that the bank would value this at 572. But it's about playing this game right and knowing your game to that level that, you know, you understand and realize where to squeeze, how to play in these hot markets and understand that, you know, there are properties where you would have 30 to 40 active buyers in yeah. any given point in time, right? Yeah. Uh, and so sometimes it's okay to pay an extra 5k to lock in that property now, knowing that if a week passes through, then the property price would change by five to $10,000 because that's how fast the market is moving. Yeah, and in in that in these situations when there is a lot of a lot of competition and it is a hot market, uh, where where do you see that you you've just got to say no, it's too much, even though it's a hot market and you see thirty forty people, right? Well, how much is too much? Well, I mean, you have to identify the price point, right? So, you know, that's very very important that you look at the market comparables and identify what that price point is of that particular suburb of that particular property of that particular zone of that particular land size, right? And you need to stick to your walkaway prices, right? Yeah. So you can't just be emotional about paying an extra 5k for every property, especially like for us, you know, we buy four properties a week, you know, if you start paying five property 5k for every property that we are going to acquire extra we are changing the suburb median of ourselves, and that just is unrealistic, right? And so it's okay to walk away from a lot of these properties where, you know, the agents are being unrealistic, right? Um, and so you win some, you lose some, but, you know, you manage to basically keep the median price and don't inflate it just because, you know, you are keen to get the customer or your client off your books and, you know, trying to get a, a property for them and off they go, right? So yeah. There's a very thin line in how do you identify this property. And so I say do the desktop research, understand what the land value is, what the land to asset ratio is, what zone this is, what are these zones selling for, 
you know, is there a development potential in there? You know, do your due diligence, do the market comparables, identify the price point, identify the walkaway price. If you have access to bank valuation, seek a bank valuation upfront and then go in and put the, your best foot forward. And if they turn around and say, no, they have a bigger offer, then just walk away. It happened to us today, like literally, you know, we made an offer on a property for 535 as a walkaway price and that property sold for 560 we're like good luck it's fine I think that's like you said you need to stay firm to what your walkaway price because so, it is so easy to go oh it's just another thousand dollars oh it's just another two thousand dollars oh it's another five thousand dollars which might add I don't know a hundred dollars a, a month to my loan which again it may not seem a lot but you just need to consider the long term you know if it is if it is in a rising market, five grand may not make much of a difference at all. If your intention is to hold it for a fair period as well, then that might be okay. But you need to be able to assess all the different elements of the investment grade property, what's happening in the market. So what are some other, I guess, reasons why people might pay premium for a property, but are not particularly sound reasons? Well, I find that a lot of investors who are doing it themselves or DIY model, they get really frustrated with the process. You know, yeah. they're looking for properties and looking for properties and they get so frustrated that one, either they buy a wrong property at the right price or they buy the wrong pro- right property at the wrong price. And, that, and that's just their frustration talking, right? You know, they've missed out so many times that it's that fear of missing out that basically gets kicked in and they basically go out there and, you know, a, a slightly higher price to basically get out of the rat race. Basically, that's the motivation. Yeah. It, and so it's important, you know, you need to understand that patience is the key. Persistence and patience is the key when it comes to investment properties, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the, like you said, the buyer fatigue. After a while, you're like, just stuff it. <laughs> I'm just going to pay more mm. to end my end my pain and continuous, you know, hunt and search for the, the ideal property. So, yes. And they go into this analysis paralysis stage even post-acquisition, right? And so I remember talking to this particular person where they spent six months trying to find the property, ended up buying a property that was significantly overpriced. And then six months later, still was complaining that he bought a property which is an overpriced property and the property is not growing in value. And like, well, why did you make that call, right? It was definitely bias fatigue, right? Where people are like, they throw the towel in, it's like, this is it. I can't waste my weekends, uh, you know, every time on real estate and domain, my eyes yeah. hurt. Yes. Uh, yes. So, yeah. I'm going to talk to all these agents. Yeah. And it gets really frustrating. Emotionally, it's draining as well, right? So you need to have that passion to basically, you know, keep going back and, you know, finding the deals, et cetera. So you need to be invested yourself in order to put yourself into this, you know, into this scenario. I always say that, you know, buying pro, you know, buying an investment property is a journey. You know, it's not an event. You know, a lot of people treat it as an event and that's why they get really frustrated, right? They're like, I've been searching it for two weeks and I haven't found it. You know, I should just buy anything. I'm, 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 I have this one client this week, right? And this is, this is a very interesting story where he has a deadline for 20th of November. He has to find and sign the property, right? And so we are like a week away from right now, right? And so I talk to him probably three times a day and I said to him, and this is what I said to him. I said to him, I would rather you not buy a property at all than you buy something that is silly that is going to cause you a lot of pain. 
Yeah. Like, why? Like, just because you want to buy a property, I'll refund you your money. That's not an issue, right? But I would rather you not buy a property just because your pre-approval is expiring. I would rather you not buy the property rather than pursuing into pushing yourself into buying something which is a non-investment grade property, right? So the idea is not just to buy anything. The idea is to buy the right thing so that it can take you on that journey, right? Yeah, yeah. And this is where that unbiased objective approach really helps and having someone, a third party outside of yourself where you, you know, as, as, the, as the buyer who isn't doing this day in, day out, that emotion can get, can get the better of you. I mean, there is a lot of peer pressure, right? You know, the broker is calling you, the bank is calling you and the wife is, you know, saying, hey, you've been looking for the property for so long, just might as well get something and so there is heaps of preparation. Like people get emotionally invested and do a lot of these things as well, right? You know, if you change the equation slightly and talk about principal place of residence, right? People really, you know, go all in when you talk about, you know, owner occupiers, right? And so they try, they start valuing intangible items that is important to them, but it's not important to a buyer who's going to buy a property at the end of when you're deciding to sell it, right? Yeah. And so why would you value and put a premium to it, right? Absolutely. I have this really good friend of mine who bought a house, a, a, a tiny on a tiny land, which is a four bedroom, four bathroom house. And so he wanted four bathrooms, right? Yeah. And I was like, you do realize that this is, this is not a typical owner-occupier house, right? When you decide selling it, no one would touch it because who wants to clean for toilets, you know, every time, right? So think about some of these things, right? But people get emotionally attached to it because, you know, you know, that's how they feel about, you know, property transactions. So frustration, emotional in, you know, emotional investment, you know, this scarcity of around, oh, I want to buy in school zones, you know, that drives a lot of people paying premium too, right? Beach price, beach side properties, waterfront properties have that Australian beach lifestyle access, you know, they always attract a lot of premium too sometimes, you know, people end up paying slightly more because they want to buy closer to the beach or they have a water view and, you know, sometimes it's not water, it's maybe you know, not even a lake, what would you say, like a drain or something, you know, and it would be a water view, you know, I was looking for one of the properties the other day and my wife is like, oh, this space is water. And I was like, no, it doesn't. It's it's a freaking water reserve. It's, it's not water. And yeah, I made, I made the exact joke to my brother. He lives in Singapore. And if you've been to Singapore, there are some really large drains. There are actually drains. Right, and and his apartment overlooks a big drain. And I remember my mum saying, "You know, your brother's got water views." <laughs> and like, you know, where swim in it is not considered water. So, uh, like, people didn't pay premium for it, though, right? Uh, yeah, I'm, I remember when I was looking for my principal place of residence. You know, going back a long time now, I visited this property. You know, pictures showed water. And I went there, I was like, this is a swamp, bro. Like, this, is, you know, this is nowhere close to water. This is a swamp. That's true. Korean and bright marketing, marketing there. So, all right, well, so let's, let's, help our, let's help our audience come up with a bit of a, a summary and a, a rule of thumb of what are the things to consider. And, and just to summarize the things that we've gone through, maybe about three or four items to go. All right, if I'm looking at this property, I do I pay... Of course, we're all going to want to pay fair, fair value for it. But at what point do I sort of allow myself to push it a little bit more? What are some good rule of thumb? So buying as an investor, and if you're buying in areas or pockets or locations 
that are ripe for high demand, low supply. You know, you're looking at the granular data. You know, you've identified pockets that, you know, these are ripe for, you know, short-term growth. These pockets can move by 5 to 10K quite aggressively, okay? So if you are ahead of the curve and so you're not following the herd, you would get an opportunity to pay the fair price. But if you are in a market where there is 10, 20, 30 offers on every property, know that it's okay to pay 5K or 10K extra for that property, okay? I'm talking about, you know, property worth 400 to 500. I'm not talking about a million dollar property, right? Yeah. It's okay to pay an extra, you know, 5% of the purchase price of the property, typically, right? Basically, you know, did I say 5%? Yeah, 5% roughly, yeah? And it's it's fine because know this, and, and this is my rule of thumb, right? If there is 40 offers on a property that I want to buy and I bought this property, know this that there are 39 people who will go out there frustrated because they've lost this property and they will pay more, right? And so they will drive the price up and and the cycle continues, right? One person buys, there are 38 now and they'll go out there more frustrated and then one person buys again and then there are 37 who goes out there and are more frustrated. So you want to be that first one who buys and gets out, right? You don't want to be the 40th one who is at the end of the curve because you are doing paralysis analysis. And a lot of investors basically end up becoming the 30th or the 35th or the 40th. And they said, oh, I bought it at the peak. Of course you bought it at the peak. You know, you should be making and paying this decision point yeah. And yeah. way earlier in the piece because you are following the herd mentality, right? But if you're following the data, you would be able to identify some of these pockets quite earlier in the piece, right? So that's where, you know, it's important to understand how much it's okay to pay the premium and what dictates and decides, you know, the, the premium price. What else should we be looking at? So we talked about, and and particularly where we're, we're referring to investment properties, right? Not so much, you know, owner-occupied property. Generally, there is a little bit more emotion about it. But then we were talking about investment properties, and and look at where you know there's there's the demand and, and supply. We talked about development potential, and if there's development potential, how long it will take before you settle that property? Making sure you do your feasibilities and that the numbers stack up on that and that there's you know you're you're reversing it back to what the what the land value is auctions we haven't talked about auctions and auctions ones where again emotions run wild and there's every opportunity to to pay pay more what's the strategy just to sort of tie this all up what's the strategy to be able to manage yourself in those situations auctions are the most interesting ones because you know you are at your height of emotions and that's what the auctioneer is there for right to drive that emotion out from you in relation to you paying for a, a, a higher price right the best case scenario when you go to auctions is understand what i call it is your batna your batna is basically your best alternative to a negotiated agreement it's a very MBA term, you know, and it sticks in my head all the time. So back now basically means that what will happen if this doesn't happen, right? What is your next best alternative, you know, if this doesn't happen? And so, you know, if you have other properties at similar price point or, you know, other deals at similar price point, would you be able to find something that is similar to this? If you can't say, for example, this is your forever home, this has everything in it, then you would want to go a bit extra because you'd be like, well, I can't find something that has all of this yeah. in this property, right? And so if you have the means, then yeah, go for it. Don't go crazy, of course, but give yourself a walkaway price. Always give yourself a walkaway sure. price, right? 
I'll share uh, a story here. I was in an auction about two weeks ago, and this is very interesting. So the client was with me. This was a development site, but also their, you know, almost like forever home that they were planning to create there. And so they were doing a duplex where, you know, right in front of the beach, you know, like 200 meters from the beach, you can walk to the jetty, et cetera, all of those things, right? And our walkaway price was 1.6 million for this property. Now, when we rocked up to the auction, there were only three bidders. So not a lot of activity on, on the auction. No one actually opened up the auction. I actually opened up the auction at that time, right? But the person that was there who, who felt quite agitated, I realized, you know, because I go around speaking to people, I realized that this person is a builder, is a developer. They're there to basically do the same thing, right? You know, buy this property to develop. And so as the auction started, we were the two people that were just bidding. And so I stopped bidding. And I stopped the bidding at around 1.5. And my client who was with me, he's like, why are you not bidding? Our walkaway is 1.62, 1.64. You know, why are you not bidding? And I said, and I said to him, there's no point me bidding because he's a developer and a builder too. So his walkaway is exactly what, what my walkaway is, right? And so if I push this price all the way to 1.65, he's a builder too, he would probably go all the way up to that price point, right? An extra 5.10, 5.10. But what it does for me is it leaves me no choice to come back into the market and request the lower price point because that's the yeah. new baseline that I've created for myself. And so if I let him have this property at 1.5, knowing that the agent already has an off-market available for me that he's going to bring out in two weeks' time, I can actually argue my case that, hey, remember that auction I was there and this guy bought that property at 1.5? Well, you can't ask for anything more than 1.5 for this property, right? And those are some logical decisions that you have to make when you are at the auction. Yes, you know, you are playing the auction strategy, you're bidding against, you know, all of that, and that's fine. You know your walk away. But sometimes you don't need to reach your walk away. You need to walk away from even if you get to that walk away price at all, because you know that you need to come back to this suburb and buy more. Right? Yeah, I really, I really like that strategy and that forward thinking. I mean, this is premised on the fact that there's a good chance that you might find another property that's like, like you said, it sounds like you had some sort of information and then connections to a property that might be very, very similar. So, in a sense, you've gotten gotten rid of the competition. They've got they're they're happy because they got it at a price less than what they they thought they would. A little bit of short term disappointment, but hopefully that you'll be able to secure another another side at a good price. Yeah. Yeah. And so people don't foresee it that far, right? You know, naturally, you know, people think in a very short term in a spur of a moment. They'll be like, Oh no, this is my walk away, so I'm going to go all in and basically you know, burn all the bridges and try to get this and be emotionally wasted into this. So yeah. It's important that you understand what your outcome is that you're trying to achieve. How do you go around achieving those outcomes and understand what exit strategies that you can create and that dictates the premium price, whether you should be paying a premium for this property or not. Yeah, around it. So don't just go throw money at a property. Think it through. Definitely. And look, that's the wise words from Cheryl Leo. <laughs> if you have any more questions if you have stories like I, I think we've shared so many stories today about you know paying overpaying why do you overpay when would you overpay but definitely wise words to end the conversation if you have stories to share if you have comments you know feel free to you know jump onto our podcast share those stories share those comments with us thank you for listening to us today take care stay safe keep smiling keep investing 
This is Sherilyn Moss checking out radio. See you. Bye.